About 1600 years ago, a man named Augustine wrote his most significant work. Augustine is one of the most influential Christian thinkers in the entire Christian world. And not only that, this text that he wrote, City of God, is not only one of the most foundational texts to Western Christians, it's one of the most foundational texts just in the Western world in general, in Christianity or outside of it. And he wrote this line that at one point just made me burst out laughing. He said this, it is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all men desire to be happy. And the reason that I burst out laughing is not just because he's kind of sarcastic and snarky when he says it, but it, because I felt like I was resistant to something that Augustine was so determined about. I was kind of skeptical about, you know, the modern pursuit of happiness and pleasure and just seeking that first. In my head, it was just all about seeking, the, seeking God and not just seeking happiness. But it caused me to start to wrestle. In fact, this entire 1,400-page tome, The City of God, is ultimately about Augustine saying, listen, the assumption is you want to be happy. Let's talk about how you can be as happy as humanly possible. Not even just humanly possible, but divinely possible. So the question that I have today is wrestling with my own skepticism and maybe your skepticism as well with this question. Does Jesus want you to be happy? Is that the point? Is that what Jesus is really interested in? And so to that end, we continue our series through Psalm chapter 23. We're going to read the first few verses and then get to our point in verse 5. This is Psalm chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And our specific verse for today, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We want to start there with that verse. You prepare a table before me. What's with the image of a table? Well, it's a place of gathering, it's a place of eating, it's a place of feasting. And based on experience with my father-in-law, I know it to be a place of deep happiness and joy. And the reason I say that, for those of you who have not eaten, in fact, with my father-in-law and the few of you, my in-laws, who have, you cannot eat a Thanksgiving dinner with this man and not realize the joy that he exudes. You literally sit down and just like his entire demeanor just brightens. He experiences it. And the reason you get to know it is because there's also on the opposite end, opposite end, the opposite effect. When it's over, all of a sudden, he literally said at one point, I'm just sad. I'm sad that it's over. I'm sad that I don't get to just eat all these helpings of turkey and mashed potatoes anymore. I'm sad that now the people are going to leave the table. I'm sad that it's over. It's a place of deep happiness. In fact, in scripture, when the biblical authors are trying to think of like, what is the image we can use to communicate as much happiness as possible? When God ultimately restores his people, when he decisively acts in history, literally in Isaiah 25, when he wipes every single tear away, what is the image they turn to? It's a table. 
You can look this up in Isaiah 25 and also in Revelation 19. The place that they look for is a marriage supper, a table, a feast of people gathering together. It's the image they use of ultimate joy. Or the famous words of Paul in Philippians 4, what does he say? He says, rejoice sometimes when you feel like it. When the sun is shining and you're on vacation in the Okanagan, sitting on your porch, sipping wine, overlooking the lake. The famous words of Paul, right? No. What does he say? He says, rejoice always. Again, I will say, in case you missed it, rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's Philippians 4. Rejoice always. In all circumstances, rejoice. And do it in a reasonable way. You have a reason. It makes sense. You should. You shouldn't just be kind of doing it in some sort of strange way. Rejoice always. So the answer to our question, does Jesus want you to be happy? I think is just a resounding yes. Jesus wants you to be happy. Now, some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, what is this guy on about? If I was you and I was listening to myself, I would be thinking, oh my goodness, what is this guy on about? In fact, when I'm in these situations and I'm struggling with what the person's doing, I literally start to vibrate. I just can't handle it. What those of you who are feeling this way are thinking is that this is not true to the story of Scripture in general. In fact, it's not even true to the single verse in Psalm 23 that we started with. Let's go back to it and read the other part. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. These are words written by King David, the most significant king in Israel's history, the one to whom all other kings are compared to until the time of Jesus, and the one who knows what it's like to be surrounded by his enemies. His mentor and predecessor chased him down in order to try and kill him. David went to many wars and himself experienced what it was like to be on the battlefield. And what he's saying is that even in this place of deep fear, deep pain, deep loss, deep uncertainty, there was a table that God had set before him. I think the nature of sometimes familiarity with a passage like Psalm 23, or maybe even if you're not familiar with it, just the nature of it coming from an old book, is that we don't feel the weight of what David has just said. So let me give some modern examples to understand how ridiculous this statement is. The statement is like saying, I've just lost my job. Let's go eat. Let's celebrate. The statement is like receiving a cancer diagnosis and saying, I'm happy. The statement is like wrestling with infertility and saying, let's celebrate. And I bring those things up not to trivialize them in the slightest. I don't want to make them seem insignificant. My point is the exact opposite. My point is this is a passage. This is a verse that is talking about deep, ultimate joy. And I am just fully uninterested in acting as if we can access that joy in some sort of superficial way. I think that's our tendency. I think of the words of Pharrell Williams in the song, Happy. It's a really upbeat song. You kind of clap around to it, you bounce. And he comes to this chorus and the line is this, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. And to be fair, anytime I hear this song, I just can't help but dance, can't help but clap. It's just the way it works. But it is just trying to 
brush over deep pain and woundedness with superficial happiness. It's like polishing a turd. It's still a turd. I'm not interested in trivializing our suffering and saying, just be happy. And we actually do this in Christian circles as well. This isn't just like an external thing. We often talk when people share like deep depression, a key response that people can give is, yeah, but don't you have the joy of the Lord? We just tempt to brush over deep pain. I'm not interested in trivializing it. I'm not interested in a superficial type of thing. What I'm interested in is saying that if this is true at all, it has to be true in the place where we are surrounded by our enemies. Maybe a better way of answering our question is this. Does Jesus want you to be happy? Yeah. But in a way that reckons with suffering. In a way that reckons with pain and heartache and grief and fear and uncertainty. There has to be some type of joy that's available there. And if it's not available there, then we should act as if it's not available at all. That's what this table's about. So how on earth do we get there? I think at this point, it's important that we uh, kind of decipher between two different visions of what happiness is. On the one hand, we have circumstantial pleasure, and on the other hand, we'll have what we call relational joy. So what's circumstantial pleasure? I think it's best contained in these words by Audre Lorde. She says this, It feels right to me is the first and most powerful guiding light toward any understanding. The marker of knowledge, the marker of certainty, the marker of the ability to act is a recognition of, does this just feel right to me? Does it feel good? Does it feel appropriate? I want those things that feel right. Or in the words of my favorite theologian, Taylor Swift, she says this, they say I did something bad, then why does it feel so good? They say I did something bad, but why does it feel so good? Most fun I ever had. And I'd do it over and over and over again if I could. Just felt so good. So good. There's a longing for a certain type of pleasurable experience that is marked by a certain type of circumstance that you can access. And Taylor Swift wants to access that pleasure. She can't, but she's like, I would go back to that again and again and again in a heartbeat. And I think this is the world that most of us live in when it comes to thinking about happiness, is we think about happy circumstances, pleasurable circumstances, pleasurable emotions. We think about those feelings we get, as I've mentioned a couple times now, in the Okanagan on vacation, at a graduation, with a new promotion, when we're with family, at a Thanksgiving dinner, whatever it is, we think of just like the certain circumstances that are going to make me happy. That's the world of circumstantial pleasure. On the other side, is the world of what we'll call relational joy. I think it's the world that's contained in this image in Psalm 23, where it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me, this image that has been used in Scripture of ultimate joy. Well, what goes on with a table? What goes on with this feast? It is a place of great eating and great food, but perhaps more than that, it's a place of gathering. In fact, in those two places that I mentioned, Isaiah 25 and Revelation 19, that is the central image that's going on. The table is a gathering point for the nations, a gathering point for God's people. See, the place of ultimate joy here is connected deeply to relationship. 
There's a psychologist named Dr. Alan Shore who actually defines joy as the experience of witnessing the sparkle in somebody else's eyes when they see you. This has helped me to understand a blessing that my father spoke over me when I was growing up as a child uh, right before bed. Some of you might know it's from Numbers chapter 6, and it's these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And what this has helped me to think of is that image from the vantage point of heaven is, yes, the face of God shining upon his people. But from the vantage point of humanity, it's the place of deep joy. Why? It's because you get to look up at God and you would see the way that his face lights up when he sees you. You get to see the sparkle in his eyes. It's the image that scripture turns to when they want to talk about this blessing upon his, upon God's people. It's a relational space with God himself that has also worked out with the people around us. This is the place of joy. How is this different from circumstantial pleasure? In this way, joy is a relational overlay. It's a relational overlay. And what that means is that it's not marked by circumstance, it's not marked by emotions, but it's marked by a relational reality that you can put on top of any experience in your life. You are just as capable of this joy on your porch in the Okanagan as you are when you grieve the loss of a loved one. Because it's not marked by emotional satisfaction, nor is it marked by circumstantial pleasure, but it's marked by the ability to be in the place with people who deeply love you and cherish you and delight in you. This is the table that was set before David in the presence of his enemies. It's the table that was set before us in whatever our circumstances. It's the difference between circumstantial pleasure and relational joy. Now, where does this get worked out? I think the great battleground for these two different visions of what it means to be happy, where that's being worked out on the battlefield, is in the area of sex. On the one hand, if pleasure is the ultimate goal, then man's sex is central. It's the place of this euphoric bliss, unlike anything else we can humanly experience. And so you want to have as much of it as possible, you want to have as much access to it as possible, and you want to remove all barriers possible in sexual liberation. This is what the point of the sexual revolution has been. Pleasure would place sex at the center. If the goal, however, is this relational joy, then yeah, sex is still really important, but for very different reasons. If joy is the place of a table, of intimacy, of coming together and celebrating, of delighting in one another, of seeing the sparkle in someone else's eyes, sex is the place of intimacy, of relationship. And in so, in fact, it goes so far, what we're told in Ephesians 5, which we'll move to in a second, is that what's supposed to happen in this place is you're supposed to give, be given a model not only of human relationship, but of relationship with God himself. Yes, sex is so important. And so what I want to do is I actually want to go to Ephesians 5. 
And I know I have this like sick, twisted mindset where I just choose to take on the most challenging topics possible. I do this to myself. There's nothing in Psalm 23 that would require me to go there at first. I just think this talking about joy and pleasure pushes us there. But I just have this tendency, I've said it for years, where if you were to give me a choice of the 52 sermons that you have to preach in a year, I would just take the most challenging one. It's my wiring. But the reason I believe this is because even when we're in these situations of discomfort, of pain, of heartache, of sensitivity, of delicacy, all these things, when we are perhaps, in, another, in other words, surrounded by our enemies, there is also, in fact, a table that is set before us. There's the ability to experience even here and perhaps uniquely here when surrounded by our enemies, surrounded by this uncertainty, surrounded by fear, that there's actually a place of ultimate joy. So we're going to turn to Ephesians 5, which is, again, one of the most controversial uh, verses for many people, passages for many people. Just know here that my intention is not to say anything controversial in the slightest. My intention here is to say, is it possible that there's a table even here in this deep battleground of our present cultural moment? Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Sorry, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, anytime we read this passage, I think it just needs to be acknowledged some of the deep uncertainty and wariness we have about verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Sitting with uh, some of our friends a few months ago who are not interested in Jesus at all and ended up walking through this passage. And might not be, as you're thinking, the initial passage you would go to for people who are not presently interested in following Jesus. And in retrospect, I think you're probably right, particularly because these are some of the most down with the patriarchy people that I know. Interesting choice. But I remember just walking through them with this passage and just explaining two things. Thing number one is that submission in scripture is probably one of the best words we have for what love looks like. It's the word we get to see in what Jesus did on the cross. He died on the cross. He submitted himself. He humbled himself. And in that was the great expression of love. Submission is something that we are to do to one another, as we read in verse 21. Submission is the place of humility and coming underneath that is the expression of love. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly right now, what we see in this passage is that the 
dominant emphasis for Paul on the way you're supposed to live is actually on the husband and specifically the way that the husband's orientation must be to uplift the wife, to empower and serve and lift up the wife that she may be everything that God has created her to be. That is the goal, and that's the type of thing that the wife was told here by Paul to submit to, that type of service and submission. I remember saying this to our friends, and they were struck. I remember the actual words. The down with the patriarchy people just saying, I love that. There's something in here that we actually should see as beautiful in what Paul is saying. More specifically for our purposes, though, I just want to say, just want to note how throughout this entire passage, probably the most significant passage we have on what marriage is supposed to look like, what Paul is doing is he is just weaving back and forth between marriage, between the union of a husband and wife of the becoming one flesh, and how this is actually an expression, on the other hand, of Christ's love for the church. The two are interconnected. In the words of the vows that my wife and I spoke to each other on our wedding day, we vowed that our marriage would be our greatest testimony to God's love and faithfulness. And we fail all the time in that, but that is the orientation that we are seeking. What's the point of all this that I'm saying? What I'm saying is that marriage, and along with it, the sex that's assumed in the one flesh union, sex that's not just some sort of physical act, but takes all of the emotional, psychological, spiritual realities, mixes it together, that marriage and sex gives us a window into who God is. More specifically, our vision of sex informs our vision of God. Now, that's pretty abstract language, I understand. So let me give you some concrete examples of how this like centering point plays into all of the realities that we see and all the controversy that we see around sexuality today. What the intention was is that marriage and the sex within it would be a place of deep love and connection, not only just of like receiving, but like of serving one another. In contrast, on the other side is what we see in a culture marked by pornography, not only is pornography a place where we actually like lose the sense of giving and serving in sex, but it's just something that we like receive and consume? Not only is that true, but in the same place where there's been this rise of pornography, we also see fascinating and perhaps unsurprisingly, the fact that our relationship with God, our vision of God and culture is actually more so marked by consumerism. The same consumerism that happens in pornography. You just want to take you just want to receive. You just want to sit and listen and get the benefit, reap the benefit of something you did not sow. That's how we view God. Or in this one, what the intention was is that the exclusivity between a wife and a husband, their exclusive marriage, their exclusive love for one, one another was going to actually model what would happen between Christ and the church, this exclusivity of worship, commitment and fidelity to him alone. What we see, on the other hand, is a culture marked by hookup culture or casual sex is more so defined just by a plurality of partners. And not only is that true, but perhaps unsurprisingly, as this has happened on the other hand, we also see that our vision of God is a place where we really struggle with this idea of, of, this idea of being exclusive to him. We really struggle with the idea of Jesus himself being the exclusive way, the truth, and the life. Our vision of sex informs our vision of God. Let's continue going down this path. What the intention one was is that marriage would be a place of safety and security and deep trust and love and intimacy. 
And what we know is that through something as horrific and tragic and terrifying as sexual abuse is that this is marked by something totally different. That not only with that individual, but with people in general, we just lack trust. We lack the sense of security and safety. We know that. And it's perhaps unsurprising that that same lack of trust and security starts to filter over into our relationship with God as well. It becomes a challenge to actually step into the safety and the security that we are told is the love of God, but we just don't trust it anymore. Our vision of sex informs our vision of God. Marriage was intended to be a place that just committed to resilience, lifelong loyalty to one another. What we see in a culture marked by uh, high rates of divorce is that there's also been a matched rate of a struggle to be actually resilient in our faith, a lifelong faith. There's a connection there. On the other hand, what we saw was that in marriage, you were supposed to understand that within the context of this covenant between a husband and a wife, you're supposed to be able to see that this is the place of deep blessing. But what we see in what's today and what's quote unquote called the ridiculous of waiting for marriage, of waiting to have sex until you are married, is that we are interested in seeking the pleasure side of things first and maybe getting to the covenant stuff afterwards. Perhaps it's no surprise then that in our vision of God, we just want to proclaim the happiness things first. We want to proclaim Jesus wants you to be happy without stepping into the reality that this is part of the covenant of God. Maybe lastly, what we get to see in marriage is this flesh union of male and female becoming one flesh, this deep unity that happens there while they remain male and female united as one, and yet categorically different. What we see in a progressive sexual ethic that would try and uh, remove this distinction between male and female, uh, that would try and step in a different type of vision of sexuality, is there is an understanding of unity without a categorical difference, without it just being male and female. How does that affect our vision of God? Perhaps it's unsurprising, not that this happens all the time, but perhaps it's unsurprising that oftentimes under a progressive sexual ethic, when we no longer see marriage and sex just for a husband and wife, what happens is, in the same way that that does union without difference, we start to see God just in the context of his union and his love, and not in the context of the fact that he is holy and other and transcendent. Our vision of sex informs our vision of God. What I want you to hear is not that we are attempting to put up boundaries of who's invited to the table, just the opposite. I stand here as someone who has experience with these things, some of them more than others, in particular, the reality of pornography. It's been a battle for me for over a decade and probably within the last couple of years is the only time where I might be able to say that there's been some victory. I am part of a weekly accountability group and then separately have another accountability partner that I call weekly. I battle in this. It is a battleground, and maybe that is, again, the best type of language in this. For all sorts of reasons, it feels like a battleground. It feels like we're surrounded by enemies. Our enemies could be people in particular political parties. Our enemies could be people on a platform with a particular voice saying certain things. Our enemies could be friends. Our enemies could be uh, figures of authority. Our enemies could be family members. We are surrounded in a battlefield. What apparently the ridiculous nature of Psalm 23 tells us is that even in this experience, there is a table. David says, you prepare a table before me 
in the presence of my enemies. We find in these types of moments that we typically have two types of tendencies, fight or flight. You're on the battleground. Some of you in talking about this, you feel the fight tendencies rising up. Could be against people you feel like are on the outside. Could be against me. Could be against memories. You feel yourself in the fight tendency. Others of you feel in the flight tendency. You're walling off. You're not sure how to step into this world. You're running away. There's a third option we're given here between fight and flight, and that is a feast. An opportunity to sit down at a table and to see the sparkle in someone else's eyes when they see you. To experience a joy even in this place of deep discomfort. And that's my deep longing. That's my deep longing in this struggle that we have right now, this really crucial conversation that we have around sex, is that we would be a place where you can actually sit down at a table, you can actually experience that relational joy that can overlay any circumstance. So maybe that's the thing that we just need to hear today. Jesus offers a joy that defies all circumstance. Regardless of the circumstance, there's a joy that is available. It is a deep paradox. It's available in the Okanagan. It's available with a temper tantrum. It's available when you've just received a promotion. It's also available when earlier this week, after a big trip, your luggage doesn't get back on the plane with you. Joy is just as available. Even when every single pair of underwear that you own was in that luggage, joy is still available. I don't know that I chose it then, but because of the fact that there's a father who delights in me, it is available. So maybe some things as we wrap up here. There's a need to actually step towards the table and eat. How do you get this joy that defies all circumstance? Particularly if you are someone who is not surrounded by people. If you are not surrounded by humans whose faces light up when they see you, how can you get this? The invitation is to sit at the table with a celebratory host who has prepared it for you, who has prepared this feast for you, God himself. How do you do that? I think it's interesting that the image that Jesus gives us of the table is one where he himself is the bread and he himself is the wine. He says in pretty provocative imagery that we must take and eat his body, his flesh, his blood, drink of his blood, because this is the way to receive and step into that delight, that joy. You sit and you feast and you partake in the life of Jesus. This is the way we access the delight of the Father is in Jesus. The second thing that I just want to note is that as the active hands and feet of Jesus, if you are a Jesus follower, our invitation to be is to be table makers for others. And the deep paradoxes of life in the pain. Think of these words from James Smith. Jamie Smith says this, you might not have imagined it, but sometimes the good life looks like casseroles in the quiet sadness of a mournful home. A table prepared in the wilderness by people who are hoping for a feast to come. We actually need to be the types of table setters who go to people who are in the place surrounded by enemies, pain, fear, uncertainty, and saying, there is a table that is available and I am going to be part of Jesus actually inviting you to it. So let me close here with the words of a Puritan prayer from 400 years ago that just wrestles with this paradox so beautifully. It says this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. 
Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. May it be so, Lord.